This is Scott, host of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast and Black author. You could get all three of my books. My first book, Systematic Racism and Capitalism, Alliance of Oppression. My second book, Hypocrisy in America, The Veil of White Supremacy. And my third book, my first novel, Exodus 2035, all available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone or tablet, and you can access those products. Thanks for listening. Um, don't forget you and you network. You can find that on Instagram, you and you underscore network, where you can find all the shows uh, under the you and you network. Shout out to the you and you network. You know what I'm saying? And all those podcasts that's on you and you network. Think for the you and you network. The head brothers at you and you network. You can check out the socials at you a n d u underscore network who's that creeping through my window before you come outside i got the info took it to the end zone from the end zone no, I love to smoke, you love to lick more Wanna hit the jack, then what you call for? All that out your name shit, that ain't called for mm. Who that creepin' know the tennis dark? All that fallin' love shit, got it Kevin Hart All that speed and fast shit, we might tell apart All that copper ass shit, I might clip a sarge Keep bouncing that ass, you just might get a wart yeah, if she bad, she get a pass into the tour Passes, I think yeah. through the family, grab a bass like Janet Ops outside, don't panic, gotta switch, gotta change up transit Still jump around, move fancy, and I still don't like shit fancy I'm late, feeling real chancy, outside really trying to hear me White former police officers who called themselves the Goon Squad have pleaded guilty to raiding a home and torturing two black men earlier this year after first trying to cover up their actions. Some of the officers face life in prison. On January 24th, court records show the deputies raided a home in Braxton, Mississippi, after a white neighbor of one of the officers called them to complain there were black men staying there. The officer texted the others, quote, are y'all available for a mission? That night, without a warrant, the officers burst into the home, handcuffed, beat, tasered the two men, Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker, also sexually abused them with a sex toy with shouting racial slurs. One of the officers put a gun in Jenkins' mouth for a mock execution and pulled the trigger. The bullet lacerated Jenkins' tongue, broke his jaw, exited through his neck. This is U.S. Attorney Darren LaMarca last week announcing federal charges against the former officers for the attack. But not only did they brazenly commit these acts, but after inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood. gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference. 
what disregard for life. After the attack, Michael Corey Jenkins was actually charged with a felony based on methamphetamine the officers said they found in the raid. But records show that was a lie, and the charge was dropped. In fact, the deputies planted drugs to devise an excuse for the raid and also stole surveillance video from the house. Their body cameras were off. Court documents said the officers used the name Goon Squad, quote, because of their willingness to use excessive force and not to report it. The Associated Press found the deputies were linked to at least four violent attacks on black men since 2019. Two of the men died. For more, we're joined by Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker, as well as Malik Shabazz, a civil rights attorney with Black Lawyers for Justice who's representing them. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Malik, let's begin with you. Can you talk about how this case was exposed, um, how we saw um, these officers charged, and what you understand about their background, this not being the first vicious attack. Okay, thank you for having us on. I want to say before we get started that, that Michael and Eddie will only be speaking, that they cannot speak about the specific details of what happened in that house that night. But they can talk about their reactions to the guilty verdicts and, and to their pain and suffering. And, and Michael is suffering because half of his face is numb. But we're thank—and we have sentencing coming up, so we're under certain sensitive legal guidelines. But we're happy to be on with such a progressive audience. This case was brought to light through the determination of, of Black Lawyers for Justice— of myself as the attorney for Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker and Mississippi Council Trent Walker. From early January, we have advocated strongly and vigorously in every way, and we have worked with uh, community activists in Mississippi and throughout the country in order to bring the truth that is coming to light today, that these defendants, uh, Hunter Elward, Christian Dedman, Brett McAlpin, um, Middleton, Osdyke, Aus and uh, Joshua Hartfield, that they, they're called the Rankin County Goon Squad. They're known in the community as the Rankin County Death Squad. This has been occurring for a long time under the leadership of Sheriff Brian Bailey, who is a, should be the subject of criminal investigation also. And uh, they have been getting away with this so long that they felt emboldened to act in such a radical and callous way on that night of January 24th, 2023. But it's through persistence. It's through intense legal advocacy with us advocating to the U.S. Justice Department, collecting evidence and applying legal pressure and all kinds of pressure to bring about what is now historic. Last Thursday, these six defendants uh, pled guilty uh, to uh, 14 federal criminal charges. They'll plead guilty to more state charges Monday. This is the first time, democracy now, this is the first time that a white Mississippi police officer has ever been held criminally responsible 
for harming a black person. And we know that plenty of police brutality has occurred, not only in Rankin County under Brian Bailey, but throughout the state of Mississippi. This is a history-making moment. I'm just so sorry it had to come on the, uh, on the backs of the pain and the suffering, the torture and the shooting and the abuse and waterboarding of Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker, our clients. I can't bear to go to Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker meeting you in this way for what you went through that horrific January night. But I'm wondering if each of you could respond to the guilty plea of these officers and what it means to you that some of them may be facing life in prison. Um, Michael Jenkins, let's begin with you. Um, I feel I feel great that we're finally getting justice. You know, after after months, you know, um, at first they didn't even believe us. You know, um, for a while I didn't think they were gonna even get a slap on the wrist or anything. But I feel great about it. And I know it's a difficult for you to talk with the gun in your mouth. The police shot you through your mouth, lacerating your tongue. Uh, it went through to the, your neck, shredding that area of your neck. I am only glad that you can be with us today. Did you think you were going to survive that night, Michael? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I'm, I'm still going through pain right now. My whole face no, my mouth hurting right now, as we speak. And Eddie, Eddie Parker, if you can talk about your response to this plea deal. Um, this is a long time coming. Um, it's uh, something I, uh, I say there's also history, too, you know, uh, uh, coming from a, a long uh, way of uh, going through this situation with uh, the same police officers and Pretty much, uh, you, you steer clear, you know, to stay out the way so you wouldn't end up in this situation. But ending up in this situation wasn't uh, was a part of me, you know, staying clear. So I'm uh, I'm astounded. I'm 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 real happy that it's it's finally come to a point where they're getting uh, you know getting a a feeling of what they uh, what they dish out to people, you know, day in day out. Uh, and I really misspoke because it's not a deal. Um, they have pled guilty. Um, <clears throat> the idea that they call themselves, Eddie Parker, that they call themselves the Goon Squad, your thoughts? Uh, that's the Goon Squad. That's, uh, that seems to be a, a, a crime organization that uh, they were, I guess they were paid to, uh, to go out and, and you know, uh, to stop. But uh, they became that they self. I, I believe uh, policing and, you know, uh, the public, you know, go hand in hand. I mean, there, there are people just like us. You know, they want to be uh, held accountable for, you know, uh, everything they do. They want to get, you know, uh, this, you know, certain, uh, I guess you say, um, the end of the stick treatment as, you know, being uh, the golden ones. But they're not. They're people just like us. I mean, they, they go out and they do, you know, the opposite of what they're they're getting paid to do. I, uh, I think it's it's very horrendous how they they can call themselves a you know goon squad and you know still uh, put on a badge and say they're protecting people. 
Malik Shabazz, your lawsuit also mentions other times Rankin County Sheriff deputies used excessive force. I want to ask you about Damian Cameron, who died in 2021 after being taken into custody by the same Rankin County Sheriff's deputies who later attacked Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. This is a clip from a WAPT news report featuring Jenkins' mother, Monica Lee. A news release from the Rankin County Sheriff's Office says deputies got a call about a burglary and vandalism. When they arrived, Damien was identified as the suspect. The release says as a deputy approached him, he began to fight and resist arrest. They were able to eventually get him into custody and into a patrol car. And I'm thinking they're taking my son to jail. So I go outside and tell my son goodbye and I love him and I'll be up there tomorrow. At that point, when I got to the side of the truck, my son was laid on the ground, unresponsive. Monica Lee has said she believes if the sheriff had taken action against the deputies involved in her son's death, maybe they would not have gone on to attack Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. The lawsuit also holds Sheriff Bailey responsible for failing to properly train the deputies involved in these incidents. This is Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey speaking last week about the charges his former deputies pled guilty to. Based on the facts and their guilty pleas, all of the former deputies lied to me that night of this incident in January. We have cooperated fully with all outside investigating agencies to uncover the truth and bring justice to the victims. We've also sought assistance from outside agencies and consultants to help us in repairing our trust with the community. So that was Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey speaking last week. Uh, Malik Shabazz, the civil rights attorney who has brought the lawsuit um, on behalf of Michael Jenkins uh, and Eddie Parker, if you can respond to the sheriff and to this previous case. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to give honors to Miss Monica Lee, who was the mother of Damian Cameron, attorney Trent Walker, and myself. We represent uh, Ms. Monica Lee for the death of Damian Cameron, which occurred at the hands of the Rankin County Sheriff's Department and its officers, including Hunter Elward, the shooter who didn't just shoot Michael Jenkins in his mouth. He placed the gun inside Michael Jenkins' mouth and held it for an extended period of time, almost up to a minute, before he intentionally shot Michael Jenkins in his mouth attempting to kill him. Uh, yes, Miss Lee is correct. If they would not have participated in a cover-up around Damian Cameron's death, Damian Cameron's death is, is analogous and very similar to George Floyd's death. It was Hunter Elward and Luke Stickman who put the knees on Damian Cameron's back and on his neck, causing trauma to his neck and causing hemorrhages in both of Damian Cameron's eyes, uh, meaning that the compression on his neck is, uh, uh, is what was the, what led to uh, asphyxiation and his actual cause of death. But the autopsy mysteriously was ruled undetermined. With all of the evidence that I'm saying and all of the gruesome photos of 
the neck injuries and the hemorrhages of the eyes bulging out of his head. The autopsy finding was mysteriously undetermined. The autopsy itself is missing certain information, and therefore, myself and Black Lawyers for Justice, we have our own forensic pathologist who are coming forth shortly to show you that this was a homicide and that Rankin County and Brian Bailey refused to provide the state medical examiner with information to reach a proper conclusion because they were all protecting the officers from criminal prosecution. Therefore, they they uh, the autopsy is suspicious. The autopsy and the efforts to have a genuine autopsy, it was covered up by Rankin County. And, and Brian Bailey has been a part of this. Ms. Lee is correct. If they hadn't been trying to cover up, if Bailey hadn't been trying to uh, 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 justify his officers. No, he didn't just not train them. He has participated in acts of excessive force with his department, according to the courts. When Hunter Elwood shot Pierre Woods in Rankin County on the ground and he gunned him and he shot him nine times with his rifle and the man was no threat to him, Sheriff Bailey was on the scene and a federal judge ruled that Bailey could not have qualified immunity because he ratified and watched it all go on in person. And so the truth is coming out about the death of Damian Cameron and how uh, they, they, they had the knees on his neck like his mother has testified by affidavit to, and they had the knees on his neck that crushed the life out of Damian Cameron, and they did nothing about it. They've lied to us, but we're going to bring that case. That case is coming back to life. Uh, Rankin County is infested with white supremacists, Ku Klux Klan. They infiltrated the sheriff's department. Brian Bailey has known about this. These are, many of these criminals were on duty up until June 1st, only through the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and U.S. Department of Justice leader Kristen Clark and her Southern District in Mississippi, who've done a great job. Only through their efforts has Brian Bailey, uh, sheriff, trying to come to some remorse. He has not even apologized to the victims. We demand that Brian Bailey step down now. He's a part of a pattern of practice and a culture and a custom of terrorism by his department. We have blacks, whites, rich, poor. They have been beaten by his officers. He's known this all along. And the struggle continues uh, in this case for compensation for these two suffering victims, Jenkins and Parker, but for all of the victims of Rankin County terrorism. It's the number one county for terrorism and white supremacist infiltration. Case in point for our close, Christian Detman. He has, it's coming out, he has family members that have pled guilty in Mississippi to hate crimes. Welcome back to another episode of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. As you heard in the opening clip, six former Mississippi law enforcement officers pled guilty to all state charges against them for the torture and abuse of two black men, one of whom they shot in the mouth. Here's what happened. According to a federal document, McAlpin, who's one of the police officers, got a text message from his neighbor telling him, 
Several black men were staying in a white woman's home and reported seeing suspicious behavior. So the neighbor called the police. So the neighbor called this police officer or Texas police officer who also lives in the neighborhood, telling them, you know, it's it's just a bunch of black men staying in this house over here and their behavior is really suspicious. Now, we're going to slow walk this one. Suspicious behavior is not against the law. You could stand in the shadows wearing a hoodie and shades with your arms folded, not doing anything. Is that behavior suspicious? Possibly, but it's not against the law. McAlpin texted his other white police officers, who they call themselves the Gloom Squad, and asked them if they were available for a mission. One of the officers, Christian Deadman, responded to the text and warned the deputies there might be surveillance camera on the property, telling them to knock on the door instead of kicking it down. If they saw any, the document stated, otherwise they could barge in without a warrant. The document continued. So one of the police officers was was basically tipping them off. It's like, hey, this house might have, you know, surveillance cameras. So don't just run in and kick the door in, you know, knock first. But if you don't see any cameras, barge in and do what you do. The document also said that the officers tested no text in the text the officers also said no bad mug shots meaning don't beat them in the face you know beat them up on parts of their body that you know nobody will be able to see so they got to the house avoiding of avoiding a surveillance camera above the front door the officers opened the carport door two of the officers went through the carport while another officers kicked open the back door they encountered Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. Parker was living there to help take care of the woman who owned the property and his friend Jenkins was just staying there temporarily. So Eddie Parker, he, he is a caregiver. The woman who owns this house is probably an elderly white woman and she needs a caregiver. So Eddie Parker, he was staying there. He's the caregiver. And Michael Jenkins was his friend. He was just staying there temporarily. Okay. They didn't break into the house. They weren't robbing the house. They were staying there with permission of the owner. Over the next two hours, the two men were subject to grueling violence at the hands of the white officers, the federal document says. They were repeatedly tased, called racial slurs. The officers poured milk, alcohol, and chocolate syrup in their mouths. The officers threw eggs at the men. The officers poured grease on the men's heads. Eventually, Elward, one of the officers, removed a bullet from his gun, forced Jenkins onto his knees, and put the gun in his mouth. You heard Attorney Malik Zulu Sabaz said he put the gun in his mouth for a long time. Over a minute, Elward fired the gun, which did not discharge then racked the gun, put the gun back in Jenkins' mouth, and pulled the trigger. The bullet lacerated Jenkins' tongue, broke his jaw, and went out through his neck. Here's what the officer also did. They used a sex toy on these men. These officers used a sex toy 
to torture these men. Where the hell did the damn sex toy come from? <laughs> I mean, that big ass Batman utility belt that these cops have every damn thing in. There's mace. There's a there's a taser. There's a gun. And there's also a sex toy in that damn belt. Apparently, they sexually abused these men with a sex toy. And then shot one of them in the mouth. And the bullet went through his neck. And then after. They violated and tortured these men. For no other reason than just being black in an all white neighborhood. They planted methamphetamines on them to cover it up. Michael Jenkins, he was charged with a felony. Based off the drugs that they planted, you heard it in the clip. They tortured, shot these men, arrested them, and charged them with a felony. Rankin County, Mississippi, is right next to Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson is where all the black people live. That, that's where they don't have running water. Rankin County is where all the racist white folks live. The Ku Klux Klan, the racist police officers. Rankin County is whites only. Rankin County is a sundown town. They had so much evidence against these officers, they had to, they ended up pleading guilty. They didn't even cover it up good enough. Why? Because they had gotten away with it before. The Goon Squad, as they call themselves, they were in within the last what three years since 2018, I believe. They have been involved in previous cases where excessive violence were used against black men in particular, and two of them died. But they just chalked that up as you know they just died in the line of duty. We were doing our jobs, you know these these crazy niggers. Those cases have been reopened due to current events. Since they got caught on this one. See, Michael Jenkins didn't die. You you heard him talking in the clip the best he could. I mean, lacerated tongue. Got shot in the jaw. The whole left side of his face numb. He's constantly in pain, but he didn't die. The previous men did. Not only did, is Michael Jenkins still alive through the grace of God. He said when he got to the hospital, nobody believed him. Nobody believed him. You also heard in the clip. Christian Deadman. He currently has a family member. Doing life in prison. For a hate crime against a black man that he killed. His family member. His name is Daryl Deadman. And this is what he did. Back in 2011. Back in 2011, Daryl Deadman was 18 years old. Here's what he did. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly, running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. 
According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. Family member of Christian Deadman, Daryl Deadman, when he was 18 years old, he ran over a black man in a parking lot named Drake, James Craig Anderson down in Mississippi. Ran him over for no reason. Him and he had two white girls in the truck with him. They ran over James Craig Anderson, went to the local McDonald's to catch up with their buddies and bragged about how he killed him. Said he ran that nigga over. This is an ancient history. This happened in 2011. He's serving a life sentence right now for the murder of James Craig Anderson. And it was a hate crime. So the Deadman family, this is a family of white supremacists down in Mississippi that don't like black people. These are violent white supremacists. They killing black people. Christian Anderson, I mean, Christian Deadman, the police officer, ain't no telling how many black people he done, he done abused and killed. Shout out to the warrior scholar. Black attorney for justice, Malik Zulu Shabazz, for doing excellent work on this case and getting these brothers some justice. And Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, she should have led with that. The murder of James Craig Anderson, that's the story that she covered. They covered this hate crime. And this is Christian Deadman's family member? They're related? So that whole family need to be investigated. Who else in this family is killing black people down and terrorizing black people down in Mississippi? Let's go on to the next story and let's talk about the blind side, Michael Orr. Maybe you saw this movie featuring Sandra Bullock. It is really based off the life of Michael Orr, who is a retired NFL player. When he was a teenager, he, he was going through some hard times, some family issues. He was homeless. He was adopted by this white family. He ended up going to the NFL. And, you know, everybody goes on to live happily ever after. Feel good story, right? Well, Michael Orr, he's actually suing this family. He said when he was 16, this family never adopted him. When he was a teenager, this family never adopted adopted him. Like, you know, they say in the movie. They actually made him sign a conservatorship. Which basically means we have legal rights over you. And in the conservatorship, and they made him sign it twice. They made him, made him sign the conservatorship when they took him in. And they made him sign another conservatorship when he was going into the NFL. And in that conservatorship, this family got 3% of all his NFL earnings. Everything he ever earned from being a professional football player, they got 3% of it. Not only that, they own the rights to his life story. He has made no money off that movie, The Blind Side. He can't sell his own story in book form or television form or tell his side of the story about his life. They own it. And he's made no money off that. So he's suing them saying like, hey, these people have been taking advantage of me. These people took advantage of me. They made me sign this thing when I was a teenager. They made me sign this thing, you know, when I was going to NFL. I, I didn't realize that they would be, you know, making all this money off me. That they, they've been profiting off me for years. And I can't make a dime. Now his NFL career is over. You know, he's trying to do things with his life story with, you know, the intellectual property. But this family owns it, so he can't. And he also said 90% of everything you see in that movie is a bunch of bull. 
which I already knew. <laughs> I hate I hate that stupid movie, The Blind Side. I've been saying that for years. Like this, this stuff ain't happened. If you ever watch that movie, now that he's came out and telling you that movie's a bunch of BS, if you ever watch it again, look how big and stupid they make him look. Really, all black people in that movie, really, all black people in that movie just are just downtrodden and no good, and he looks all big and dumb. He's like, that's a bunch of crap. That famous scene that I hate, where they take him into the house and they give him his own bedroom, and he, and the actor's like, I, I never had one of these before. And they say, what, your own bedroom? He says, no, a bed. <laughs> he said, that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> never had a bed before. He's a damn teenager, never slept in the night. Come on, man. Come on, man. So, surprise, surprise. That ain't real. That's why I say all the time you can't get your history from Hollywood. They've been taking advantage of this brother. Yes, he was on hard times. Yes, they did take him in. Here's why they took him in. He was 6'7", 350 pounds. He took one look at this man and said, if I can get him into D1 college football, I can get him. He can, he's going to the NFL. They knew that. That's why they took him in. Because he was 6'7", 325, and he can play offensive tackle. That's why they made him sign that conservatorship. Let's talk about uh, hip-hop, 50 years of it. Let's get into it. For Jeffrey Allen Towns, the first half of 1988 was a whirlwind. He was 23, and he and Will Smith had just released their second album as DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and now they were on tour with Run DMC. We were so happy to go on stage in front of 20,000 people screaming and cheering and loving this music. A whole lot of superstars on this stage One day, a camera crew showed up to film them for this experimental new show on a cable channel dedicated to music. MTV. I remember shooting that with Run DMC on Run DMC's tour bus. We were more excited to hang with them than excited about this being MTV. You know, we had no idea. You know, this could have been a, the local newspaper. Producers prompted them to introduce music videos and voice some transitions. There was, there was absolutely no kind of a script. It was extremely raw. Then they went back to the tour and put it out of their minds. Months later, DJ Jazzy Jeff flipped on the TV. I'm DJ Jazzy Jeff. And hey, yo, I'm the prince. And I'm ready, Roxy. Hold up, what's this? We want to let everybody know where it's at. It's right here. Yo, MTV Raps. We almost had to be reminded that we shot the pilot of that. And you're like, oh, man, that's when we were on the bus. would run. You know, that was the actual first show, like... That was a pivotal moment that we didn't see at that time. Yo! MTV Raps was the first show on MTV dedicated solely to hip-hop. It came at a crucial time in the genre's relatively young life. Born out of backstage concert footage, it would make national stars of rappers whose work had been largely ignored by mainstream media. And it was built by a scrappy team in the face of a skeptical corporation. This week, we're celebrating 50 years of hip-hop and looking at some of the key moments that helped define it. Today, 
the story of Yo! MTV Raps. In 1988, MTV had only been around for seven years. In its early days, rock music ruled. The very first words ever heard on MTV on August 1st, 1981 were... Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. When it started, the programmers for MTV, the people who chose what music videos to play, were all veterans of rock radio from the 1970s. And rock radio in the 1970s had become a deliberately racially segregated affair. Dan Charnas is a hip-hop journalist and former record executive. This is the pattern for the first few years of MTV, where they're just not playing black artists. And this is not just MTV not playing black artists. Black artists had been essentially ejected from pop radio as well. Black artists, in order to get on pop radio, had to overperform on black radio. 1984 saw a modest breakthrough when the first rap video aired on MTV. And so that begins a pattern with MTV essentially programming one rap video per year for the next three, four years. So it was Rockbox by Run DMC in 84. Then it was King of Rock by Run DMC in 1985. Then it was Walk This Way by Run DMC and Aerosmith in 1986. You see the pattern here, right? You have to do this overly performative rock guitar thing in order to be successful in MTV. By the late 80s, hip-hop's rise was harder to ignore, but MTV executives still hadn't greenlit a hip-hop show. I think some of them viewed hip-hop as sort of a fad, something that was just a trend that was going to come and go, and obviously they were dead wrong about that. Jen Cheney is a TV critic for Vulture. The lack of interest from MTV's leadership didn't mean hip-hop didn't have champions at the network. There were two guys who worked at MTV, uh, Peter Doherty and Ted Demi. They were huge hip-hop fans. And they kept saying, we need to have a show that's just about hip-hop. And they just kept beating the drum about it until finally someone's like, okay, make an episode. Let's see how it goes. That episode would be unlike anything MTV had ever aired before. Yo, what's up? I'm Jam Master J. This is Run DMC. And welcome to Yo! MTV Rap Show. There was no host and no studio. Run DMC introduced the first video on stage in front of thousands of fans. We're going to start to show off with Eric B. and Rakim. Follow the leader. From the tour bus, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince introduced their own video. Public Enemy made an appearance later on. Boy, my name is Flavor Flay. And I'm Chuck D. And we want you to check out some of the new up-and-coming rappers that's ready to rock the house. That's right. Check this out, boy. The pilot finally aired on August 6, 1988. And the ratings were decisive. The ratings point was like a 9 or a 10. And to put that into context, a network thing at that time would have been like a 2.0. Like it was off the charts, immediate high interest. The producers didn't look back. They got a host, the graffiti artist and renaissance man Fab Five Freddy, and made it a weekly show. But they didn't lose the experimental style. We had a say in continuity and break all the rules. That was the attitude. Moses Edinburgh was a director and producer on the show. Fat Five Freddy was a host. He didn't want to be in the studio like the regular MTV DJs. He wanted to be on the ground. 
where it's happening. And that was unique at the time for television. Ah, uh, yeah, welcome back to Yo MTV Raps. I'm still cold, cooling in Cali with NWA and my man Easy E. And we still in Compton at a. At the we would try our best to be just like a fly on the wall. If we went out to the West Coast and hung out with NWA, we weren't trying to change them or have them do anything that they wouldn't have already done. We just wanted to be a part of the environment. Eventually, Yo MTV Raps did become a daily show in a studio, airing in the afternoons right as kids got off school. A televised artery into national teen culture. Yo MTV Raps live rides, you know what I'm saying? We don't do this nowhere else but here, you know what I'm saying? So check me out though. When Yo MTV came out and I went to my family reunion, there was somebody with a haircut just like mine. There was somebody with sneakers just like mine. That's DJ Jazzy Jeff again. Like this is making the playing field completely even now because you didn't have something special in New York that you couldn't have in Virginia now. And to me, all of that started with MTV. Yo! MTV Raps would be on the air for the next seven years until August 1995, after the network had started to de-emphasize music videos. For DJ Jazzy Jeff, those years were crucial for the legitimization of hip-hop, the future of which had felt so uncertain when he'd helped shoot that pilot episode in 1988. I always feel like that time was a very pivotal moment in hip-hop that it could have fell on either side of the coin. And companies were trying to figure out, do I need to get into the hip-hop business? You know, is this something that's even going to be here in the next three, four years? And then I remember when you started to say, you know what? I, I, I think we're okay. I, I, I think we're, we're going to be here. I'm old enough to remember when MTV, they, they didn't play rap videos at all. Only black, matter of fact, you need to see black people on MTV. Only three black, only black folks you've seen on MTV was Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Run DMC, as they talked about. So, corporations did not want to invest in this hip hop thing in the late '80s. Wasn't sure if it was going to be around for three years. MTV, all they cared about was rock and roll. That's all they wanted to play. That's all, all they wanted to be shown. And as you heard in the clip, yes, it was racially motivated. Why you want to show all these niggers to, you know, put them, put them all on t- television and show them all these white kids. Put on some, some, you know, Twisted Sister or Led Zeppelin or whatever the hell. But 50 years, hip-hop is still going strong. Whether you love it, you hate it, it's, it's around. It's not going anywhere. In spite of, not because of, it made it in spite of. I will say there used to be a little bit more of a balance. But, you know, I'm old and out of touch, so whatever. That's back when MTV used to show music videos. I don't think they do that anymore. But once again, this has been another episode of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for listening.